I'm Samantha Bove, and this is She's Too Much. This show is for the woman who's been told that she dreams too much, talks too much, cares too much, thinks too much, feels too much, needs too much. And I say it's about damn time that we are even more. Because that thing you think makes you too much is the exact thing the world needs more of. In Riverside, you don't have to let somebody in. Right. They just show up (laughs) and scare you first thing. I'm so glad I wasn't doing anything really weird. (laughs) After I sent you pubic hair this morning, I think that I've already taken that. (laughs) Okay, so pubic hair is always a topic of conversation for my friends and I. Was it a topic of conversation when you were growing up? For sure. Yeah. Really? Nobody. Well, yeah, because nobody was like doing anything about it really when I was younger. Like it wasn't until I moved to L.A. that I even knew like you could go get waxed or that there was such thing as like a Brazilian or whatever. Like it was just not a. How old were you then? So like up until this was... point, you didn't even know how old. No, I was 22 when I moved to L.A. Yeah, it wasn't a thing. And my mom was like a nudist. And so she was like really like they went on like nude vacations and like <laughs> kooky stuff. And so, yeah, she was like super open and like, you know, it wasn't like it, we didn't like it wasn't a topic of conversation, but I just don't think like it just like grooming it the way we do now, like wasn't wasn't a priority in the 90s or the 80s or whatever. <laughs> oh, my but God. That, that album cover got banned. They had to change the Amorica album cover because of the pubic hair. What? In the 90s. I mean, that's not that long ago. And it's in a full bikini. Like, it's literally mm-hmm. just a little bit of hair. It's not like it's, like, full yeah. thing. Yeah. Banned. Yeah, I think about... My friends and I were always talking about it because laser is such a thing now, obviously. Yeah. And... You know, my girlfriends are always like, should I get it all lasered off? Should I not? And I'm like the friend that did get it all lasered years ago because honestly, mostly because I had like bad ingrowns. Uh-huh. I just every time I shaved it hurt. And so I was like, I need to just get rid of this. And but it's funny because now I see my friends with like these beautiful <laughs> bushes that I actually love and they can like take so much authority in, you know, <laughs> creativity and like how they want to design it and what they want to do. And it's like so cute. And we were all just in New Hampshire at a lake house for my friend's birthday. And we are like a nudist colony there. It's like the yes. most fun thing. I always get messages <laughs> because I'm always posting like, you know, our backs and like we never have any clothes on. And it's just like, oh, my God, the most liberating thing in the world. And so, you know, we're talking about it and whatever. And, yeah, I just kind of have, like, bush envy now. (laughs) Like, I'm never going to have that. Yeah, it's hilarious because I, yeah, I just, I never even thought about it. And I remember getting to L.A. And I think we were even at, like, a pool party or something, right? And it was, like, that scene in Sex and the City. I think it's in the first movie when, like, they jet off to Mexico to rescue Carrie And Miranda, you know, is like unkempt and they're like, oh, my God, you know, like it was almost like a situation like that where people are like, what is happening? And I was like, what do you what? like what? You know, and they were like, uh, 
you need to like like maintenance downtown immediately because we spent a lot i like i went to college i grew up in texas right like we spent a lot of time in the lake like lake people lake folk are a different breed <laughs> like bougie you know hotels in la yeah and so i would get out there and they were like oh my oh my god you know like it was just a, but it, i didn't ever it never occurred to me and like i said my mom was so like free and open with her body that i was just like oh you know, and I'm really conservative. Like I not so much now, but when I was younger, I was like very covered up. I think, you know, it was a little bit uncomfortable with how open my mom was. And so I was like, cover everything. And that's what I always say when people are like, what would you do different? Da, da, da. And I'm like, well, you know what? I think everything's a lesson. I'm like, the one thing I would do different is I would wear less clothes when I had the bod for it. <laughs> like when I had the best body ever was when I was like the most covered up, you know, I'm like, that's what I would do. If I could go back just for one day and like rock some crazy ass outfit. <laughs> Please think about that. Like, you know, I try my hardest to live in like live with the awareness that I know I'm going to have when I'm like 50, 60, 70, 80. Like one of, we just got the film photos back from the trip at the lake and oh. took a million photos of everybody. And one of them I'm, am clothed, but I'm standing there and I'm, you know, just on the lake and I have a bikini top on and, you know, it's a really beautiful photo. I'm like, wow. Like I don't have like a a smile on. I just kind of like looked and she took the photo and I'm like eating a cherry and my pants are really low, like white linen pants. And I'm like, this is a photo I'm going to look at, you know, 20 years from now and be like, she had it going on. Like, yep. look at that body. Look at how happy she was. Like, you know, just so it's a really beautiful photo. And I really try my best now to live in like the awareness of, I know I'm going to think that, you know, you were beautiful. And because I look at photos in high school where I literally walked around where I'm like, you're so fat. Like you're the fattest one Ugh. in the group. You have like way too much, you know, cellulite, this and that. And I lived in that consciousness. And now I look back, I'm like, what? <laughs> like you were so cute. You were yeah. adorable. So I just don't want that time to keep going where I live in a state of not appreciating what I have right now. Good. I'm so glad to hear that. And, you know, another thing I can say about that is that it's funny, like when we talk about like men and lovers and things like that, like I would always hear women tell these stories and I hate it when I hear like a really awful, not I'm ta not talking about like an assault situation, but just like a less than lovely and special story of how somebody lost their virginity. Um, it always breaks my heart because mine was like so sweet and beautiful and lovely. And I've always in my head or in my intuition, like I've always attributed that to like, I have a very womanly body. I've always been curvy. I have big boobs. I have childbearing hips, you know, like I'm like a curvy lady. And I think that men that like curvy women love women, right? And so it's always been sort of this like, rule out for me, right? Like a dude that's not into my body type is not super, I'm not saying he's not into women, but you know, we, everybody knows the stories, like the fashion industry has sort of like perpetuated this look and it's run by primarily gay men, right? And they like boys. And so women that have that build, right? It speaks to them differently. And so I've always like, I've been so lucky. And that's one thing that I like thank my body for all the time is that it attracts these men that just love women. They love like all the squishy bits 
bits and the big bits and the bouncy bits, you know, and like, that's how I think I've been able to have such beautiful experiences in that way, because I've been like, it's attracted men that just love women and loves their bodies, you know? Oh my God. No, I know. (laughs) I really know. I really know because I, I haven't had that experience until this last year where I had somebody, you know, like just comment like, oh my God, your thighs, they're so big and say it with this level of like, like, this is the best thing. And this is also, you know, there's, there's women who, who can't put weight on their body and they're totally beautiful in their own right. It's just the curvature of a woman's body is just different. Um, and are you making me think too of this also guys, it's New York. There's a lot going on outside. If you can hear it, it's a busy day, you know, bear with us. But, um, I was in Tel Aviv, as you know, we were chatting last week and I was in the ocean with my girlfriend who she really looks like a model. Like she, she has definitely more curves than I would say like a runway model, but she's really tall. She looks like a Russian supermodel. She's going to laugh when she hears this, but she, I always tell them like, you're a Russian supermodel. She's Russian. And she's like, stop it. But she is like just people's eyes. There's like, what? And so we're in the ocean and this guy, everybody's so friendly there. He comes over to us and we're just chit-chatting and he's, we're talking about, I don't know, whatever. And, um, he's like, oh, you girls, you're so beautiful. We're like, oh, thank you. And, um, he's like, but you, he looks at me, he's like, you, you are so fat. I love it. And I'm like, oh my God, do you remember this scene in Eat, Pray, Love where <laughs> he says that to her when they're in yeah. the and he's like grabbing yeah. her stomach and he's like, you're so fat. And she's like, what? I was like, yeah. thank God I saw that and knew Brazilians like genuinely say that and love that. In my mind, I was just like, wait, why do I live in America again? <laughs> right. Right. Yes. I just think it's so like, yeah, it's such a funny, it's a funny thing. It's like everybody's body is different and unique and special. And I I just wish that, yeah, there could be more of embracing that. And it seems like it's trending that way. It really does. And so I'm happy to see that. I'm happy to see that at least for, you know, my daughter's generation, they seem to just be like, yeah, whatever, do you, you know, it seems a lot more open than it was whenever, you know, I was in like the heroin chic era, you know, of like (laughs) skinny, 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 tall, 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 like, you know, Tyra Banks was considered curvy, you know, where you're like, what? How's that curvy? Now she looks beautiful and is and she was beautiful then. But that was funny to me as like a legit curvy gal that (laughs) that that was curvy. (laughs) Yeah, right. Okay, so let's let's go back to being nudist colony (laughs) raised (laughs) with a free spirit. Sounds like I want to take it back to little Jen and even actually before we go into it, just to set some context of like why Jen is here, I just the whole point of she's too much to me is to bring on women who either I found their work, a podcast, a book, a song, and it changed me, it moved me, it illuminated a part of me that I didn't really know was there that I really wanted to bring more into my daily life. And the women who I have a personal relationship with, who their way of being in the world has moved me and shaped me and changed me and has given me more permission to walk into a room and light it up the way that I do. 
And so the first time that we met, which I think we met in the best way, which is from one of a mutual friend who we both yeah. are obsessed with and that you've been friends with forever. And I'm sure mm-hmm. we'll talk about Jen, which it's just, if you guys are looking to make more friends, ask people that you like to connect you with people. It's the best, the best thing. So true. Um, so I walk into a restaurant in Austin when I was visiting, which is where Jen lives. And the yeah. minute I saw her, I was just like, we're going to have a blast. Like there was no boundary. There was no walls. It was just like, I am not going to pretend like I have anything together or that I, you know, I, I, I know too much. It just was like, I'm here. And that's just how I feel about you. And you're just really like, just so magnetic. Like when you walk in a room, when you speak, you're fucking hilarious. Like I just adore adore you. And we became really quick friends. Like my two and a half weekend trip in Austin, I think we saw each other three or four times and I'm like, this is it. So that's the context. So tell me, little Jen, like upbringing, like how did you move through your family life? Like how did you perceive your position in the family? Did you have siblings? Like what was your outlook in your younger years? Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I did have siblings. I'm the oldest of three, but I'm the only girl. So I have two younger brothers and we're all spaced out pretty far apart. So I'm five years older than the middle boy, my my younger brother, and then 10 years older than my youngest brother, who is my half brother. And so we were all kind of spaced out and I like ruled the house. Like it's so funny because my husband's also the oldest of three boys. And so you can imagine sometimes the uh, the conflicts in the house because I'm used to being obeyed. <laughs> I mean, I can remember when they were kids. My mom was a working mom. My stepdad worked. I lived with my mom and stepdad after my parents divorced when I was seven And like, I can remember if they wanted dinner and I was feeling sassy, like they had to call me Princess Jennifer before I'd serve their food. I mean, like things like that, like it was no. And I had like no shame about if there was like cake left over or something. And my mom would be like, "Okay, share the cake with your brothers. Like I'm taking like the giant slice of cake and then like I'd half like a sliver for them. Like I had no qualms about it. And so it was funny whenever um, I never really knew if I wanted to have kids when I got older or not. And that was something that terrified me. I'm like, what if I'm as selfish with a baby as I was with those little boys? You know, like, and I'm like thinking about it now. We've been talking a lot about selfish versus selfless versus self-care versus being considerate and inconsiderate in our house a lot. And so it's funny that you're asking about my childhood because those memories have been coming up a lot. So yeah, I had a I had a really interesting, I guess, situation in when growing up. My parents, as I mentioned, were divorced when I was seven. And I was really close to both of them. Um, and they could not have been more different people. Like my mom, like you mentioned, she was a free spirit. She loved people. She loved entertaining. She loved hosting. The biggest sin in our house was if somebody left and didn't feel welcome. Like she wanted everyone to feel so welcome and so taken care of. And there was just like if she thought five people were coming to dinner and 25 people came, no problem. 
no problem. Like she wanted all 25 of those people to feel welcome throughout my high school years. um, If I had friends that were struggling or having a situation at home, she took in, I can think of two of my friends in high school that actually lived with us for a while because their home situations were not great. And she just, it didn't even occur to her. She would give you the shirt off of her back. Um, And so it took me a long time too to reconcile that like, well, why am I so selfish? I'm air quoting, you know, when I live with this woman that's such an example of selflessness. And I think that it's, it's a fine balance, right? Like you have to find that happy medium between self-care. I wish she would have put even like a 10th of that attention that she put on other people onto herself because it ended up being kind of the end of her a little bit. You know, she struggled. And I mentioned, I think on when you and I spoke last, like she and I had a super close relationship. We were very, very close and it was very complicated like a lot of moms and daughters. And it was it wasn't until probably my teen years that it started getting she struggled with depression. She lost her father when I was in middle school, junior high, it was called. But she lost her dad. And that kind of that that really triggered her depression. She was super close with my grandpa. And it kind of became a wild ride after that, you know, and she had episodes, you know, manic episodes before that, but I didn't really notice. Like, I just thought like, oh, mom's so fun. I think I remember this on the episode you had with Stephanie Banks when she was sharing about her mother, you know, like if it was raining in the summertime, like she insisted that we all put on our swimsuits and go out and play in the rain and not in the backyard. I mean, like in the front yard, like we all go out like a warm summer rain was her favorite thing. And so we'd suit up and like run around in the rain in the front yard, you know, like it was crazy and fun and just freeing. And I never it never occurred to me to not be like that until you get older and you get more self-conscious and the world sort of, you know, tries to put you in a box. And I think that was just really uncomfortable for her looking back now. And so music was always played in our house. We had it all the time. It was something that my dad and I really bonded on. So my mom and I were really close in terms of like talking about things. And my dad and I were really close in terms of personality and similar interests. Like he loves music. He loves theater. He loves movies. Like my love of pop culture is all my dad. He loves clothes. He loves shoes. Um, He loves jewelry, like all of the things. And so my personality is a lot more like his. He owned his own business and he was very driven and very smart. And he was just like, all the things I wanted to be like, I looked up to him so much and still do, honestly, it's uh, and so that was always interesting, I think, for my mom, like it was hard for her to reconcile, like, well, how are we so close, but yet you aspire so much to be like your dad, you know, and they after they divorced, never, never spoke, never got along, never said a nice thing about the other. They weren't actively trying to like diss one another, but they never They never reconciled anything. They left a lot of anger. And I think my mom was better at letting it go than my dad. But that was something that I noticed and was like keenly aware of as a kid. And I think the way I rationalized it, though, was they must have really loved each other at some point to hate each other this much now, you know, like, and I, I don't like to use the word hate, but that's what that was the thought when I was younger, you know, like there must have been some real passion there at some point for it to, 
you know, turn this way. Um, and even as a kid, that's what I thought about. Strange. That is such, I don't know where you got that from. I think just like, that's just like a holy knowing that you had. Yeah. I honestly, I had a very similar experience. My parents divorced when I was seven and I would use the word hate. Like it felt that way to me. Like it really felt like they hated each other. And I think, you know, kids are kind of drama, right? But like there was definitely moments where I think they did. Yeah. And that was definitely the vibe. Like growing up, like, oh God, like they can't stomach each other for years, pretty much forever until, you know. So, yeah, that piece of knowledge, though, because you're absolutely right. I mean, to be, that's not my makeup. I don't think I could ever really hate someone that I had that much love for, but I saw it in my last breakup. Like, I think there were moments where he hated me because he gave him so much of himself to me and it didn't work. Like I didn't want it anymore. And I think that's like really, I think the lens of that's a powerful lens to walk through life with, you know, like I'm going to decide to still see this person or this experience with such love, or I'm going to see it as a loss and like hate my feelings around it or hate the other person or hate myself because of it. So that's, very healing, honestly, for me too, because I think you're absolutely right. So something you said, though, I want to talk about or ask you is, so that's like one of my biggest priorities is making people feel welcome. So you said your mom, like really, it would be a sin if somebody left the house and didn't feel welcome. And I feel very much similarly in my home, both homes, moms and dads as well. Like my mom's, it was very much like very comfortable in the sense of like she kind of just like let us do whatever we want, not like run amok, but like, you know, by probably like kindergarten, we didn't have to ask her for a snack. Like we walked in the pantry and we got a snack. Like there was, it was just like, do what you want kids, like be kids. And then at my dad's house, maybe he was just so affectionate and so like curious. Like he, if my girlfriends were over, he was asking like, wait, so tell me about, are you still with that boy? Or house field hockey, or he just remembered and was very curious. And I think that really built a very welcoming environment. Always like, are you hungry? Let's order food. Let's get pizzas. You girls want to go in the pool? I'll heat up the jacuzzi for you, whatever. Like it was very just doting in that way and very considerate. And so I think about that a lot. Like, and I'm curious how you have built a home where you feel welcome, but not at the sacrifice of you not being involved. That's the thing that I'm very aware of is one of my exes, his mom is like, I would say the poster woman for hosting, but old fashioned hosting. Like she's just doing dishes the whole time and cooking the whole time. And you can't get her to sit down for more than two minutes. I think we, a lot of us have that mom. I didn't have that mom. <laughs> she would leave me either. It, like leave him in the sink, be like, I'll do it later. I want to hang out. I want to enjoy the party. And that to me is really important. So I'm curious, like, how do you create that? Like, what do you do to make people feel welcome that doesn't take you out where you're just doting on everybody and just being more of a servant and less of like part of the the party that you're making or the company that you're hosting? 
Um, I think it just it's a conscious effort every time. You know, my mom was like your mom and like the dishes can wait like the house would be a disaster for maybe the entire weekend because she her her mindset, too, was like, well, if it's Friday night and every everybody had a good time, maybe they'll come back on Saturday. Right. Like, I'm not going to clean if everybody's coming back. Like, and so it was almost like just this constant open invitation. And so I, it's funny, I find myself now, like if I walk into somebody's home and everything's like in place and looks perfect. Like, I find myself feeling a little bit like, oh, like, I don't want to break anything. Not that I keep a dirty home, but, you know, like I it was just comfortable to me. Like nobody felt like they had to put on airs or use their manners or, you know, like it was still so welcoming. You could just show up however you were and that was okay. And so I try and take that part when I'm having people over, like, come as you are. Like, it does not matter if you're not you didn't have time to go home and take a shower, come anyway. Like you didn't bring your swimsuit. We'll figure it out. Jump in the pool anyway, you know. And then I just make sure that I'm being really tuned into my boundaries, right? Like what are my boundaries around this? Like if the party has a stop time, then we're going to stop it at that time. You know, if I feel like people are lingering longer than I want them to, I'm not afraid to say like, okay, like party's over, you know, where my mom never really did that. Like she just sort of like once the party took off, it sort of was it it was the the unnamed guest, right? It took on it was like a living, breathing thing that took on a life of its own. And so I try and have a little bit more ownership of the event while still trying to foster that sense of being welcome and everybody's welcome. And if somebody, you know, again, if people RSVP and somebody shows up with three extra people that hadn't, that's never a problem for me. That's a compliment that they wanted to bring three friends to my house, to my party, to whatever. So um, I know that there are some people that that really like, you know, and it's not because they're bad people. It's because they want everything to be perfect in a certain way. But for me, it's just not something that would that would ever bunch me up. So I have to be aware of that because I think it's so ingrained that you can be taxed without realizing you're being taxed, you know, and I want everyone to feel so comfortable and always like my door is always open. And I also have to be really aware that um, with that comes a greater responsibility for self-care and boundary recognition. And I think that's really key is to be a welcoming host. You also have to be I thought you were going to say really aware of what people need, but primarily it's Mm -hmm. up for boundaries because if you're uncomfortable and you're setting the energy as the host, then like everybody's going to feel uncomfortable because you actually don't know, they don't know where to fit in within the boundaries of your home. And I think that that is like a really key piece of information. So Let's and I felt like yeah. that was, oh, sorry, I was just going to no. say, I felt like that was kind of a like a superpower from the time I was a kid. Again, when you talk about sort of that divine knowing, um, my mom was big into intuition. Like, I'm so grateful that she fostered that in us. Like, she, we all, you know, had eyes in the back of our head, mom's intuition, whatever you want to call it. But she was incredibly intuitive and she really fostered that in, in all of us. But I think I glommed onto it the most because I think I felt it. It was like a tangible thing for me. And I could see again from a very young age, and I can see it now as a almost 76 year old man. When my dad walks in a room, you notice my dad, the energy shifts, 
you see him. He's got this amazing, like thick head of silver hair and these blue eyes that just you you've never seen eyes like his before. Like I and I was keenly aware of that from the time I was a kid that his energy just like it changed a room. It was almost like lighting, you know, like that's how powerful and magnetic his personality was. And so I was really conscious of that. And when I started to notice like, oh, like that happens, not me because I'm special. I think maybe I'm special because I noticed it really early, but I think everybody has that power, right? Everybody can do that. And so I was always keenly aware that when I enter a space, especially in my own home, especially my own space, I'm really the master of what that space feels like. And so to me, that was enough. Now, that doesn't mean I say to my guests, like, go get your own drink or go do that. But I felt like the most important thing for me to do was just set that energy in the room so that everybody, like everybody felt comfortable and open. And that that was my primary function as host was to make sure that that energy was open and welcoming. Okay, there's so much here. Okay, one, let's know <laughs> how your mom, like, do you have any specific examples or conversations or experiences where she was like very clearly teaching you what intuition was without saying like, this is your intuition? She named it. She would say like that. This is your intuition. You need to trust your gut, like above all things, trust your gut. And I think it was just so like it was so rote for her that I saw it by example, primarily more than conversation, but she was not afraid to to name it as intuition. I think the way I speak to it about Ivy is a little bit different. That's my daughter who's 15. I talk to her about having three brains and they're all equally important. You have your head, you have the brain in your head, you have your heart, and you have your gut, your intuition. And all three of those brains are equally important. You cannot let one be more important than the other. Now, there are times when one is going to take over, but you need to check in with all three always. Don't ever think that the brain in your head is more important than the brain in your heart or the brain in your gut, right? Your intuition or your heart. Like, those are as important as the brain in your head. And she practices that. Like I'll see her sometimes like working through something and she'll like touch her head. She'll touch her heart. She'll touch her stomach. Like she's very aware of like processing through all three. And so I just want her to always be in tune to that. Like, of course, there are situations that are going to require critical thinking where you need to use your brain and you need to work out some math, you know, and you need to figure things out. There are matters of the heart that we can never Never explain through rational thought, right? And then there's that voice inside you, that gut. And that's the one I tell her, like, when that pings you, stop. Stop what you're doing. Pay attention. Like, that one is the one that is the most, like, you be in tune with that one always. Never turn it off. Never shut it down. And never shut any of the three down, really. But that's kind of the language that we use in our home to talk about it, because I really hope to foster that sense of intuition in her as well. I will use that forever. That is yeah. so good because I think the the gut one, it's that visceral reaction. It's like the it's the one that doesn't really have to me at least and you tell me how you feel about this. Heart I could I could kind of explain in my mind. It's like it's this it's this love. It's just it's love or it's real sadness or it's real empathy. 
And I know that that's going to influence my decision making in a big way. But the gut is, it's, it requires a pause. Because it's, to me, it doesn't, it's not as, um, obviously not as like vocal with words or thoughts as the brain. And it's also not as vocal as the heart. Like with the heart, I'm kind of like, yeah, I know. Makes sense. Like I'm in love. That's why I'm acting like an idiot. Like, okay. But with the gut, it's that like, huh. And I think the pause, it takes time to really understand the what the gut was trying to say. I don't really think you can ever understand. And sometimes you never do understand why you needed to leave the party at that minute. You just yeah. don't, but you knew you needed to like that. Or, you know, it's that feeling where like, oh, I always had a stomachache around him. Oh, well, that came out about him. No wonder why. You need time. And I think like my dad, I, I talk about this a lot. And I feel like I could write a whole book on all the ways that he taught me how to trust myself. But just by saying always, like if you're if you feel weird around someone, he used words like weird, uncomfortable. Yep. Not you don't trust them. They make you feel strange. They make you like he would like go like this. Like essentially what he was saying is they make you shrink. They kind of make your stomach turn. They feel off. And I love those words because it's not like they feel dangerous or like abusive. They just it just feels off. And you walk into a room or you walk near a person, you just don't want to be around them or you find yourself backing up. Listen to that. Or if you get in the car with somebody and they said they didn't drink, but you think that they did. You get out of the car and you call me. No questions asked. You will never get in trouble. You listen to that. You go down a road. You get into a cab. And so I move through my life with that feeling and without a need to really need to justify it, which I think is really amazing. And I feel like that is something that you're doing with Ivy is like you don't need to always rationalize with your brain 100% why you're feeling this feeling in your stomach. You can just go with it. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting. It's interesting to hear you talk about how it was sort of that gut that you had to tune into. And I think for me, it was the heart that I really had to let be a brain for me. Like I was very rational. I could figure things. And again, my mom fostered that sense of intuition. But it was my heart that was the hardest for me to hear when I was younger and growing up. Um, It was the one that I guarded the most. And so it wasn't as free for me to be like, oh, in love, I'm in love. That's why I'm acting like, you know, a crazy person. Like I really like kept that one like locked down pretty tight. And so um, it was really my heart brain that I had to learn to listen to. So what has that journey been like? When do you feel like you really um, started to say like, okay, I got to open her up a little bit more? What was that experience? Like, what was that time frame like in your life? And also, do you know, was there a point where you feel like you closed your heart off a bit? Or did you just kind of come out like that? You know what? I don't know. It's hard to pinpoint an exact moment. I think certainly my parents' divorce affected me. And I've always said this. Even when I was a kid, I understood it. I am so happy that they divorced. And my dad, I can remember him sitting me down. I was seven years old. And he said, you know, in these almost exact words, like, your mom and I are separating. It has nothing to do with you but we cannot get along. We've tried and all we do is argue and it feels like a war and I don't want you to grow up in a war zone. 
Like, and for like, again, for whatever reason that clicked for me. And I am so grateful that they showed me that you have to aggressively pursue happiness, right? Like it's not, you're not owed it. It doesn't just fall in your lap. You know, I grew up in the era of the John Hughes movie where the boy pulls up in the Porsche and saves you at the end. You know, like that was a living, breathing example of like, no, you if you're not happy and you've tried to be happy and it's not working, it is okay to say this is not working and it is most important to me to be happy. And that's something that I've always followed. Like you aggressively seek happiness and and it comes often, I think I've found. And I think it was when I began to really embrace that and learn too that there is a softer side to that, right? Like you can chase happiness in a way that is not like, like with your fists clenched, you know? And I think once I was able to sort of open up a little bit more and my husband's very, like his heart's very open. Um, And I met him when I was 24 and he was 26. And so I think he was a big help in letting me see what that kind of looked like. And he was so, especially for a man and a young man in Los Angeles at the time, like he was very open and very comfortable being vulnerable. And I hadn't seen that before. I hadn't really seen a man behave in that way. And I think that that gave me permission to kind of tune into that heart a little more. And I had to do a lot of work too to decide if I even wanted to be married. I didn't know if it was a concept that I still believed in. And this was, you know, the early, late 90s, early 2000s. He and I met in 1998. And I had to really do some digging. Like, I was like, this is a concept that was invented when, like, women were property and people lived to, like, the ripe old age of 35. You know, like, (laughs) it was a different proposition back then. Like, is this something that I still even believe in. And so I think it was through that journey and that process that I I was able to open my heart a little bit more and be comfortable in the uncomfortableness of vulnerability, especially around the heart. How did you land on yes to marriage? I think that I landed on yes to marriage because I felt so comfortable with Patrick and I felt so connected to him that the thought of us not being a partnership felt like it was the wrong choice. And I say that to people a lot. I'm like, you know, if if you don't think that this person is your literal other half, then stay single. (laughs) It's fun. Like, you know, and and I wasn't looking to get married. I was never like the bride's magazine gal. Like I never did any of that. Like it was just not who I was. I was having a great time being single. I had great friends. Jen Cohen was there with me back in the day. Like we were rolling around LA living the dream. Like we were having a great time. And so it was interesting, like, like to, to make the decision to lock it down. And, you know, 25 years later, here we are still trucking along. But I think I just decided that he he was my partner, truly my partner. And my life this time around is meant 
to be done in concert with somebody, right? Like this time it's a partnership. Maybe not every time I'm here, it might not be a partnership. I'm a fiercely independent person. And so is he. And we really respect and embrace that about one another. You know, we'll go off on our own at times. We take trips on our own. We take trips together. But I think that he was, he always embraced my intuition. He never told me he thought I was crazy or anything when I was like, you know, we used to go on night hikes a lot when we were younger. And there was one, I remember we were at like a spot we'd been to forever. It was actually the spot we got engaged in the Santa Monica Mountains. And we had just started out and I said, we need to go. And he said, okay. Like, no question, no nothing. Like, he saw my face and he's like, okay, we packed everything and we like booked it back to the car. And I think it was moments like that just throughout where I was like, you know what? This is a person that I can like, I can be in the foxhole with, you know, like I can be in the trenches with this person and I'm going to be better for it. I'm going to be, he's the least judgmental person you've ever met. And I think I was coming from a place of being kind of judgy. Um, and I think a lot of that was just me reacting to people telling me I was too much, to be perfectly honest. And so it was a way for me to sort of like deflect and reflect that back to people by kind of being judgy. And he's never met a person that he cannot like be comfortable around unless they're like really like if that's like kind of the gauge if Patrick's turned off by somebody or like getting bad vibes like that, you know, that like probably steer clear. And so I think it was just that I think it was really him that finally made me say like, yeah, this is a concept I can get behind at least with this person. What I'm hearing in that, which is really something that I'm looking for, not looking for because I'm really I'm still not at the place where I'm like, I want a boyfriend or I want a partner. I'm like, I don't know, honestly, if I'm ever going to be looking for it. I just don't like the energy around it, but I'm open to it. Is does instead of like, do I trust this person? Like, do I trust them and, you know, to not do anything bad or do I trust them to show up and having a lens of like, can I trust them? Can I trust them? Which I think so many women are, are, that's, you know, one of the biggest gauges of if do you feel safe with somebody, whatever, instead of do I trust them? Do they interact with me in a way that makes me trust myself more? Because by him not questioning you to say, like, let's leave a hike for no reason, just because he's giving you a gift of you also being able to trust yourself even more because of his lack of questioning. And certainly that's really, really beautiful. Yeah. And we're really different people, too. You know, like um, the way I rely on like spirituality or, you know, the way I will you know, consult oracle cards or, you know, read a horoscope or put my crystals out to charge in the moonlight or whatever it is like he doesn't do any of that. And he respects that that's important to me and that it's important to Ivy. And he just kind of rolls with it. You know, Ivy's like, hey, dad, I want to read your horoscope or I want to pull out these cards and do a reading. He's like, "Okay," you know, like he's down to check it out. And I love that, too, because I think it reinforces that we don't have to be exactly the same. You don't have to love everything your partner loves. And if you guys can come together and respect those differences, sometimes that's where you find some real magic or some real growth, I think. And it's not been perfect. Certainly over, you know, the 25 years we've been together, there have been times where we're like, 
Are we making the right decision? Do we want to continue down this path? And I think that we've always said, like, if there is a space of time where we are not making each other happy, then we need to release this thing. You know, we need to release it and just be grateful for the time that we had. And so every day that we show up is a conscious choice to be there. And I think that that's been a big difference, too, and something that I don't know every partner would be comfortable with. Like, I think in the fact that we've made it such an open-ended question is the very reason that we've both chosen to stay. You know, it doesn't feel like we're locked into this contract of marriage or whatever. Like, it feels like we're making a conscious choice. And and I think that, you know, the safety and, and the trusting and all that is just table stakes for me. Like, I couldn't be with somebody I didn't trust. Like, that's just like, and I've always been very, again, in my too muchness, I'm very like, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, like it's so easy, like sitting in a meeting where people are like, there's no stupid questions. I'm like, yes, there are. People ask them all the time. Have you ever sat in a meeting? There's always some jackass asking a stupid question. Like, <laughs> yeah, like it's not like, that happens and we can move through it. We can pivot. It's fine. So I think for me, I just don't really like that's not been a problem like somebody that I trust and somebody that's loyal, somebody that I know is going to respect me are just table stakes for me. Like, and that's what I've said to him too. Like, look, if there's a point in time where you fall in love with somebody else, like talk to me, like, just don't disrespect me. That's my thing. Like love is like, I think our foundation is, is built on mutual respect. And that's so critical. Like I could not be with somebody that didn't respect themselves, didn't respect me. And so I think that that's a big part of it too, is like, you just have to make sure that 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 part is protected, right? That you are, that you're treating one another with, with the respect that, that each person deserves, whether you're the same, whether you're different, whether you're struggling, whether times are good. I think that that's just foundational. So with the respect of, you know, let's take like an extreme example. So it'd be extreme for most marriages. Like you fall in love with somebody. What I'm hearing is like, you have to be honest about it with me because that would be respectful. Yeah. But that requires somebody to be honest with themselves. And to be honest with yourself, you have, you have to have some type of self-awareness practice, some curiosity about yourself to see, oh, wow. I haven't actually been lying to, I have actually been lying to myself. These feelings aren't just platonic. And yep. so do, would you agree? Do you think that that's like the pillar of respect for you is honesty is actually, you know, some level of self-awareness and self-accountability and self-curiosity to like developing that part of yourself that really gets to know yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think he spends as much time on self-development as I do. And then we spend a lot of time on like togetherness, like how we can develop as a couple. And it's amazing to me that from, you know, the ages of 24 and 26 to now, you know, almost 50 and 51, we are still growing and changing together. Because I think that's what happens a lot, right? As people meet young and then their their interests just change or they just choose a different path. And I think that that's so fine. I see people sometimes like hanging on so tightly at the detriment. And that was, you know, sort of my earlier point that I think 
I'm kind of circling back to here is that, yes, if he found himself one day in love with somebody else, I want him to have the self-awareness to know that. And I want him to have the respect for himself and for me and for our relationship to come to me and say, hey, I'm finding myself in this situation. What do we do? Like, don't don't cheat on me. Don't keep it a secret. Don't like we all have our our baggage and our triggers and, you know, good, bad or indifferent. They're pieces that are with us. And I think that, you know, for a long time, the circumstances around my parents' divorce, it affected me. And it wasn't until I got into therapy and learned, I always thought that marriage was just this thing that a random third party could come at any time and just blow it up. You know, and so I I gave a lot of weight to like, the, you know, this third person that could come in and ruin this beautiful relationship. And it wasn't until I learned like, oh, and I think that's a child's mind, right? Like you don't want to assign any responsibility or blame to your parents because you love them, especially when you're a kid. And so I think that it was when I realized like, oh, well, wait a minute, Patrick and I have the power here. Like it's our choice to be in this relationship. There's nobody that can come in here and blow this up. And I was like really jealous and nervous when he and I were first together. And he said to me, I'll always remember this. He said, it makes me feel like you're taking my power away because you're you're acting like I don't have any facility in this, right? Like, like somebody can just come and like steal me away from you. He's like, I'm here because I want to be here. Like, don't take that away from me. Don't make me powerless against like this weird third party or this ex-girlfriend or whatever. Like he, I'm thinking of a specific instance. He had a girlfriend that was struggling with mental illness and addiction, and she was going through a 12-step program and had reached out to him right before our wedding. And I flew off the handle, like, are you going to reach back out to her? Da, 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 da. And now, like even telling it, I'm kind of embarrassed because she was she was trying to make amends. Right. She's like working this program. And here I am like, we're about to be married. Literally, like I in the game of who's going home with Patrick, like I kind of had won, you know, was still feeling like so insecure. And I think that that was a big pivotal moment for me, though, to realize like, no, he's right. Like we we are here because we want to be here and we are in charge of this relationship. There is no third party that can ever come in and do anything to blow this up that we don't allow. So pivot to uh, magnetism. So we both had magnetic dads, yes. <laughs> which I think is really unique. Like we saw them walk into a room and shift it. And from what it sounds like, both in a way where it wasn't forceful, like it wasn't like yeah. clown energy, like big cracking big jokes right away or anything like that. It was just a shift. And I would say we both feel comfortable saying that we both have that. We've been told like, yeah, things can shift. And so I'm curious, like the qualities that you have noticed in yourself did they come natural to you? Like, what is that? Like, I'm always really curious because when I first met you, I'm like, oh, she's got it. Like, oh my goodness. And it just made me feel like I could be a little bit bigger and more myself and more comfortable. And so like, what are those qualities in people? Like, what did you see in your dad? What do you see in yourself? What do you see in people that have that type of magnetism and, and 
ability to either, right? Because narcissism is also pulling people towards you, but it also is a repellent. I think that's like something that I always think about, like with, you know, two magnets, you can also repel depending on what direction and what charge it is. And that's something that is really important to me and something I'm trying to embrace more of like, I don't need to be well liked, Sam, like not everybody has to like you. It's also a superpower to have people say no, not for me. Great. That means I'm being real. And please like stay far away, go find your people that you're magnetized to from a a draw standpoint. So when we think about qualities, like what are those qualities? How did you develop them? Were you born with them? And then I want to talk about how I think that magnetism led to the podcast and the career pivot that you had. Okay. I think that it was, I think confidence was always fostered in me from my parents. I think that that was a big part of it, whether that's like a, a, a trusting your intuition from my mom or a, you have good ideas, you're smart from my dad, you know, like they, I, again, I had both ends of that. And that's something that, again, when becoming a mom, I really I wanted to understand, um, especially from my mom before she passed on, like, how do you do that? How do I foster this confidence in a daughter? Because (laughs) sadly or not, like for a long time, and I think, you know, friends that have known me for a long time will attest to this. It didn't occur to me that I could be wrong, Sam. (laughs) Like, it really didn't. And I think that I was too much on the spectrum of that side, right? You do have to balance it. And there is a time to listen and not speak. And there is a time to reflect and not own the conversation. And there is a time to fly your flag so high so that you are attracting the right people to you rather than shifting and adapting like a chameleon to any room that you go to. Because that's kind of the flip side of magnetism, at least for me, is that I'm really adaptable. So I can also walk into a room and see what that room requires. And I can turn that on. And that walks a real fine line with inauthenticity. And so I try and put a lot of focus, especially in, you know, this current situation or this current season of life on authenticity and being who I am. And like, even today, it was so funny. I have a meeting up at the high school later. And anybody that knows me knows I love my Chuck Taylors. I've worn Converse since I was in middle school. I love them. I will always wear them. They're my shoe of choice. They're comfortable. I wear them with dresses. I wear them with shorts. I wear them all the time. And I was putting on an outfit to go and and I'm thinking, I have to go into the high school later. And I'm like, can I wear this though? Like, I look like a baby. I look like a child. And then, you know, I'm like, but this is what I wear. Like, this is what I like to look like. I feel comfortable in these clothes. I feel like I'm expressing myself in these clothes, you know? And so it's funny, like still like on the daily I'll have, I struggle with like allowing myself to be authentic because I think for a long time, it was really natural for me to, I don't want to say use my powers for evil. That's a, a, a bridge too far, maybe. But I think it is you cross into being inauthentic whenever you use that magnetism to instead of shining in a room and walking into it and illuminating it, you are trying to control it. Like that's ego stepping in and saying like, oh, I know what this room needs. I can be that you know, instead of just showing up as like, 
hey, I'm Jen. And like, even if I find the three people in the room that I'm supposed to be with, I don't have to own the whole room. And I think for a long time, the name of the game for me was owning the whole room. And so I think that understanding the power of that magnetism and being able to wield it with some authenticity and some maturity has been really helpful for me later in life. I love that you're speaking about this because you're talking about a side of it that I don't actually think gets talked about a lot because I'm usually speaking to the people who feel like they don't have a voice in a room. And that's something that like I have worked on is realizing like I can have a presence if I choose to. There's plenty of times where I walk to a room I don't want to be seen. I I don't want to talk. I'm just there to enjoy for myself. But I think that sure. magnet, like true magnetism, most attractive to me is you illuminate, like you shine a light from yourself because you're so comfortable with yourself, whether or not you have any cool conversations, whether or not anybody thinks your outfit's cool, whether or not they thought you had anything interesting to say. Like I always say, like, I'll be happy to go home with myself regardless of what happens that night because I get to go home with me and I like myself. And that illuminates on other people's beauty. And, and I also think it's curiosity. Like I walk into a room, I'm always curious and I know that you are too, but I love that you're bringing this up because I think that there's a lot of inauthentic magnetism that's being portrayed as confidence. And we all know these people. And I think honestly, it's mostly men. I hate to say (laughs) it like really comes out where I'm like, Like, are you genuinely comfortable with yourself? Are you genuinely curious? Or are you just using your bigness and your ability to speak really well or your looks or your really great outfit or whatever that is, or your your intellect and your knowledge to manipulate a room and to decide how it's going to feel at that dinner party or wherever it is, I guess, rather than like build up the best parts of that room and shine a little bit on this person who, you know, was trying to get in on the conversation or whatever that is. So yeah, I think that that's really helpful for people like, okay, sometimes also, there's a shift that needs to happen. And I think the shift is, am I actually being authentic here? Yeah, for sure. And I think that you, again, you know, we joke a lot about it, like using your powers for good, right? I think it is easy when you are a magnetic person to cross over into manipulation and just being really real with yourself. Like, when am I doing that? When am I? And sometimes, again, it is rote or it's subconscious and I have to stop myself like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm trying to bend this situation to my own will. And thank goodness I I have enough, again, like understanding and I know the language of my own intuition that I'll feel the pings, you know, and I'll or I'll hear myself say something and I'm like, yeah, not good. And I can backtrack it usually these days and go like, okay, like now I'm trying to manipulate the situation just to see if I can do it rather than showing up and just being in this moment. And so it's taken a long time. It's taken a lot of years and I'm not perfect at it for sure. But I think it really is that's work that I do. You know, when I'm meditating or when I'm tuning in and trying to understand my inner voice better, just really paying attention to those pings. And and I say it a lot, like words sound different in my ears at different times, whether it's something somebody's saying to me, I've said this to you, like you'll say things and I'm like, oh, it just hits my ears differently. Like I know I'm supposed to hear it um, or I'll hear it in your podcast or I'll hear it in a song lyric or I'll hear it coming out of my own mouth. And it's a trigger to like, ooh, I'm hearing that differently. Pay attention. What's going on here? And so, yeah, I have to be really aware. 
we all do it. Like, I think we probably do it the most in partnership where like, we're trying to low key manipulate the conversation to validate the fact that we were right. Do you find that you have a tendency like what is because if we're manipulating something and we're kind of using our like I felt like on the receiving end, like my ex's intellect was used, like financial intellect was used as like a manipulation tool a lot. Like whenever we would talk about money, I'm pretty dyslexic at what I'm realizing later in my 20s, like pretty bad. And I like need when we're talking about numbers to go really slow. Like that's just something I really need, like really slow. And I can't do it like in the middle of things. Like I need to be sitting down with paper in front of me, no distractions. I would express that for years. And like I could tell always, like I was like, you're using your your knowledge and your intellect around just getting numbers quickly as a manipulation tool for me to not have a say in how we're spending this money. And I don't like it. <laughs> and so I think we yeah. all do that. And I think it's just a, a good thing to just say to everybody, like, notice when you're doing that and what need you're trying to satisfy in manipulating a conversation. Because all it really is, is he was just validating either it was, you know, that he had the upper hand or that he really knew what he was talking about or that he wasn't making as bad of financial decisions as he actually was because in the conversation, it seemed like he knew more than me. So I think it's just a good thing to kind of take home. But I know that we're kind of running out of time too. And I really want to talk about yes. what are you listening to? Yes. So, okay. You have done some pretty big career pivots and <laughs> you were, you know, working with some of like the biggest industry names in Hollywood. And I honestly don't know what a field publicist is. <laughs> I know we don't have time to like really dive into that, but essentially you were working in like the industry of Hollywood, living in LA. And so tell me how you ended up hosting a podcast, really. <laughs> tell me about that. I know. Wow. It's really crazy. So yeah, you know, I've always, like I said, pop culture and, and the arts, music, theater, movies were always just so prominent in my house. My my family loved it. Some of my best memories are going to the movies with my mom or my dad. Um, we saw everything that came out. I love magazines. I always had magazines laying around. Like It was just a dream for me. When I was in high school, I worked at a store that's no longer around because you don't have a need for it. But it was called Suncoast. And it was like a music store, but they sold videos. So you could go in and buy movies or, you know, um, like concert videos or whatever. And we like part of the merch that we had in the store um, were like movie posters. So my whole entire room growing up was covered in movie posters. And I always like I, I was born in Oklahoma and I moved to Texas when I was 15. And I just always knew that like I wasn't going to stay there. Like California was always calling me. Hollywood was always calling me. I didn't know how I was going to get there or what I was going to do, but I knew that that's where I wanted to be. And I literally surrounded myself in it. And so when the opportunity came up for me to move to Los Angeles, it was a dream come true. I mean, I can remember there was an old movie. It was called Get Shorty, a John Travolta movie. And I can remember being on the red carpet for this premiere and just watching all of these celebrities walk by. And I was like, how in the world did a kid from Oklahoma land here? Like, how did I get here? And I just remember the immense gratitude that I felt at 
22, like standing on this red carpet, being at this party that I had helped plan that all these celebrities were at. And I was with a photographer from People magazine and we were walking around setting up shots. And so at that time, you would ask people for permission. Right. So I would grab like Rene Russo and John Travolta and Danny DeVito and stand them together and say, hey, can we take a picture of the three of you? And they would say yes or no. And you took the photo. And I just like it was such a magical moment. I'll never forget it. And then when the opportunity, that was when I was at MGM. And then when I got the opportunity to be part of the original marketing team at DreamWorks, like that was amazing. It was the first new movie studio in 50 years. It was Steven Spielberg, David Geffen, Jeffrey Katzenberg, the biggest names in the industry. And I just learned so much. I learned how to be a part of a team. I learned how to figure things out. Like I can remember we were planning a press junket and somebody was like, oh, let's go get a purchase order. And we were like, we don't have one. We had to like develop develop the form for a purchase order. I mean, it was crazy. And it was a magical because you could literally raise your hand to do anything, right? Like they, we were all learning, we were all growing, they didn't have titles at the company that was part of it. Like everybody was a team. I mean, there was a clear hierarchy, but it was just an amazing time. I met people that I'm still friends with today um, at that job. We were all in the trenches together. It was a beautiful experience. And then I was looking to sort of move up and advance. I had always wanted to get to the, the vice president level was sort of my goal and run my own field marketing team. And so I had the opportunity to do that at a place called Destination Films. And so that was sort of it for me. And it's so funny. I never aspired to like run a studio or like be the head of, you know, a producer or anything like that. It was just this like this. I wanted to run my own team. I wanted to have a field marketing team that I had put together um, with the agencies all across the country. And that was mine. And so once I achieved that, I was sort of like, ah, OK, done. Like, that's nice. And I also saw, especially back in the 90s and early 2000s, how these women that were at the studios and the men, too, like you really had to sell yourself to the studio at that point. Like there were no weekends. There was no going home at six o'clock. There was no anything. And I just saw these women especially being pulled in a lot of directions. And I can remember thinking like, oh, they're not going to get to have dinner with their family tonight or, oh, they're not going to get to go out on a hot date tonight or, oh, they're going to miss this great party that's happening because they're at work. And that was just never. I'm like, I'm not ever going to do that. And so I transitioned out of the studio system and began working at an agency so that I could experience other things. So we still had studio clients. That was a big part of our book of business. But I also got to work in the automotive industry. I got to work with consumer packaged goods. I got to work with quick serve restaurants. Um, and so that opened me up to a whole new type of marketing or type of promotion, type of business development. Um, and I found that I loved that. I loved the sales area. Again, that magnetism comes in handy when you're in a sales job. <laughs> and so we decided after our daughter was born that it was time to leave Los Angeles. I didn't want to raise my daughter there. And I feel like it, you know, maybe it's a, a terrible double standard or something that I would have to reflect on deeper at this point to see if I'd still make the same decision. But it felt really fast in L.A., you know, like everything moved really fast and there was a lot of like keeping up with the Joneses and all of that. And I felt like I didn't want Ivy to grow up in that. And I wanted her to have a relationship with her grandparents. I was super close with mine. So we moved back to or we decided to move to Austin, Texas. And this was an interesting shift because for the first time in our relationship, we moved for my husband's job and he became the primary breadwinner. 
I had always been the primary breadwinner in the relationship until this point. And so that was a really interesting shift. Talk about like knocking your worldview like over. And so when we got to Austin, I decided to stay home with Ivy. Um, That was going to be my job. And I did it for about a year. And I was like, I'm going to lose my mind if I don't do something. So we started a dating service. Um, I started it with another friend. That'll be an episode for a whole other show. And then I decided to go back into a sales role. And my husband and I ended up working at the same company for a while, which was a magical experience as well. Like, I always joke that there's no other time in our life, I think, that we could have done that except for that moment. And when I left the tech sales world, the tech sales bro is a real thing, and I did not like it. I decided to just kind of go into business for myself. I had a lot of clients and contacts that I still knew from the entertainment industry. I worked closely with the agency that I was a part of in LA, did that freelance for a while. And I was doing a lot of um, tours, like uh, American Licorice was a big client of mine. So we did tours at music festivals. Right when COVID hit, I was getting ready to launch a pop-up store in San Francisco for uh, Red Vines Licorice. And everything got shut down. So the events business was over. It was done. And I panicked like anybody would, you know, like the industry that I was working in was gone. And I knew that even once COVID ended, it was going to be changed forever. Like I was going to have to treat insurance differently. I was going to have to pull permits differently. I was going to have to do, um, I was going to have to have PPE at events, like all of these things that felt like to be perfectly honest, that felt like a young person's game, right? Like I had been in the industry for a really long time and I'd seen a lot of changes. I'd seen, you know, the music industry go up in smoke because it was built on a distribution model that became obsolete. You know, like I'd seen that happen and I just felt like it's not what I want to do anymore. And so I sat and I thought and I agonized and I cried and I wrote and I meditated and I did all of the things. And, you know, there's another time when a friend has come in, you know, Jen Cohen was so instrumental in like making this happen and helping me visualize and understand like what is next for me. And again, another time when somebody is there and teaches you to trust yourself and teaches you to believe in yourself and I'll always be grateful for her for that because she was so pivotal in saying, like, you're not crazy. And I think she was kind of the first person that I shared the idea with. Patrick was was up there, too. And not once did anybody say to me, like, yeah, a music podcast, like they just acted like it was the most natural thing ever. Like, of course, that's what you need to be doing. Like, music is how you speak. Like you, there's not a conversation that happens probably where I don't reference a song lyric at some point. And so they just made it seem like it was the most natural transition in the whole wide world. And I know that when you read it in a bio, you're like, how in the world did this, like, how did this come to be? And I think it came to be because people treated it like it was supposed to be. Even when I didn't know it was supposed to be, everyone else was like, it was crystal clear for them. I think that that is probably the biggest gift that we can give people. And I'm pretty sure that's like my number one job as a business coach is to not, not let my own insecurities or my own feelings about how hard something could be for me ever drip out into a conversation that I'm having with somebody. And I think that that is 
a really hard thing to do sometimes, especially when you're doing big things and different things, like, you know, going from the world that you were in to launching a podcast and that's really your main focus. Like that's not like normal to do. Nothing that we do is normal. And I think it's very hard for people who aren't doing those things to look at you without shock and awe. And just say like, of course. And that's something that I think my friends and I practice really well, really often is when somebody gives us great news, it's not about, or a big idea, it's not about, you know, not being excited for them. It's more of like, of course that happened because it's you. Like, yes, please. And more like really starting to normalize people's dreams that like really don't have to see, don't have to be that big or that crazy or that unsafe if that's just something that we've labeled on things and that we continue to perpetuate as big and scary and crazy because that's just our reaction because maybe we would never do that ourselves or that's just what society has told us is kind of out there so i think that that's such a great way to build closeness and intimacy with people is to just say like yeah of course that makes sense if that's what you want to do and that's who you are like yeah let's do it and just really yeah. like validate them at that deep level. I think that's so beautiful that you had that. And the idea of like, why not? Right. Like, why not? Like, it, it could go just as easy as it couldn't. Right. And I think that that's what we think a lot is we just immediately think like, oh, it's not going to work or, oh, that's not going to happen rather than like, yeah, yeah, that could totally happen. I mean, I feel like every proposition is a 50 50 one. Right. Like and so I, I think when you approach it like that, it's like and I think just the confidence, too, of knowing that if the way you're engaging in it initially doesn't work. I'm smart and capable and adaptable and I can pivot like I can try something else. And again, that support system telling you like, yes, this isn't crazy. This is this makes perfect sense to me that you're doing that allows you to kind of focus on it goes back to kind of that safety question, right? Like it makes me feel safe and secure so that I can really go into my creative space and I can create which is what makes me happy. And so I think that 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 kind of takes us full circle back to safety. (laughs) I know. So we had talked about, well, before we go there, and we're gonna have to wrap up in like two minutes, we're already over, but it's fine, because it's you. And I think you just identified one of my favorite qualities in a friend. Like, truly, this is like, really, this has come to the top. And it's people who are willing to play in the land of possibility with me. Yes. Like if you're not willing to play in the land of this could happen, because that's what really makes your reality is like, we could play in the land of this is going to go to shit, or we can play in the land of this could really work. If you're not willing to play in that land with me in your life, in my life, I'm good. Because I would way rather play there. That's way more fun. Completely agree. Yeah, I completely agree. And I have honestly little tolerance for people that don't want to play with me. Right. I'm like, okay, bye. (laughs) Like go, go if that if if you feel safety in a box or in 
thinking that things are very rigid, then I respect that. That's not where I want to live. I want to play impossibility. And I want to be with people that enjoy that too, because then it makes, you know, it's the whole two heads are better than one, right? Like then the ideas get so big and so powerful and so much good energy around them that it makes them impossible to not succeed in some way. So the podcast is, what are you listening to? And yes, launching a podcast for me has been like such a spiritual experience because you have to feel a level of safety within yourself to go there, to share your opinions, to talk about artists that could be controversial, to say like, yeah, I love this song, even though I know they had some backlash and da da da. There's so much here with using your voice. And so I'm curious, like, how has the podcast really required you to develop, you know, a deeper connection and sense of safety with yourself and how you hold yourself in, you know, a a public way? I think it's for me, like conversation has always been my true north, right? Like if you can have a conversation about something, you can figure it out. And that's what worries me about, you know, cancel culture and things like that. Like I have had to be thoughtful about how to speak about a song by an artist that's problematic or, you know, get really comfortable with voicing why I like a certain song. And I think context matters. I think time and place matters. I think that to rule that out is to is to try and rewrite history, right? You can't tell how far you've come unless you put it in context for, you know, where we are. And so really it, it concerns me that people would just rather shut someone up then have a conversation with them about it and try and come to some sort of mutual understanding. So that's empowering for me and encourages me to use my voice because I want everyone to feel empowered to use their voice. I think so many times when somebody hurts us or we feel like we've been wronged, it's not intentional. It's like sometimes somebody doesn't even know that they're doing something to hurt somebody else and people just write them off. And you cannot like as somebody who is big and loud and too much, like I appreciate it when somebody comes to me and says like, "Ooh, the way you handled that made me feel this way. And then I can say like, oh, my gosh, I had no idea. Is it a hard conversation? Is it uncomfortable? Do I have to humble myself often? Yeah. I do. And you know what? That's been some of the biggest growth, some of the biggest lessons. It's formed some of the strongest relationships and bonds. And so that's really it for me is like, I hope that in using my voice to speak in a language, which is music that is so natural for me and moves me in such a big way, I hope that it empowers other people to speak in their voice and to realize that rather than like shut other ideas or other voices down, we need to listen to them and decide like, yes, this voice is for me and it needs to stay present in my life or like, yeah, thanks for sharing, but not my brand or not what I'm into. But I just think that in silencing things or shutting everything down or labeling something as like too problematic to talk about, there's nothing in my mind that's too problematic to talk about. And it will continue to be a problem until you talk about it. And so that's how I, when I'm struggling with vulnerability or picking a song that I know is going to bring up certain emotion on the show, I just really try and go back to that, like that true north 
forth of of like conversation is where the magic happens. That's where problems get solved. It's where bonds get formed. It's where friendships and relationships like make a lasting long-term impression on you. So everybody always please like use your voice as much as you can, as much as you can. <laughs> what parts of you do you still feel like are too much that you're working on embracing more of? Oh, my goodness. It was so funny. I think in your notes that you sent over, you were like, talk about how you handle self-doubt or do you? I'm like, oh, my gosh, of course, every day self-doubt. Like I'm like when you meet the person that says, yeah, no, I don't experience self-doubt, especially the woman, like, please introduce me to her because I want to meet her. <laughs> I think that, you know, it's 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 lots of things. It's checking in with myself before I go into anywhere that I'm not just organically comfortable like really sitting with myself for a moment and giving myself some time to level set with how I'm going to enter a room, how I'm going to use or not use that magnetism, how I'm going to be the most authentic version of how I'm feeling that day. Because even as an extrovert, there are times, like you said, where I just want to go and listen. I don't want to have a conversation. I don't want to talk to people. I just kind of want to go and be anonymous. Um, it's one of the things I love about travel, because you can just go and be anonymous in a place. And so I think that I just try and be really aware and really cognizant of checking in with myself so that I know how I want to show up. And that helps me not struggle with that self-doubt because I'd say that's 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 the big one. That's an area where I, as confident as I am and as much as I try and trust my intuition, we always have that shadow part, you know, that and it's there to keep us safe. I try and acknowledge it and I try and thank that part of myself, too, for the awareness. And then I try and say, like, OK, thank you, brain, for, you know, letting me noodle on that. But I think I'm good. This is how I want to show up. And so I think it just goes back to um, I really have a focus currently on like self-awareness and authenticity and it's a constant, I don't want to say struggle. It's just a constant thing that I have to be aware of in terms of, of how I want to use my voice and knowing that people are listening. You know, again, I think that goes back to kind of our dads. You know, when my dad spoke, people listened and sometimes he was careful with his words and sometimes he wasn't. And I saw how that affected people. And so I think just being really aware of, of that is something those are those are things that I think about on a daily basis and try and be better at all the time. That one piece of wisdom, and it seems so simple, but I know most people don't do it because I only started doing it maybe a couple years ago of checking in with yourself before you walk into a room always. Because I think it's so easy to go into yeah. adapting to what the vibe of the room is or on the other end, influencing the vibe of the room rather than really checking in with like, who am I bringing into this room? Because I think we're a million different people all day. At least I am moment to moment yep. experiences, songs, work, relationship, the way my body's feeling, whatever's going on. I'm a new person every single time I walk into a room. And I think just checking in of like, my, what am I bringing into this room? Honestly, like, am I bringing grief in with me? Okay, then I need to be a little bit more protective and tender with myself right now. Am I bringing yeah. in my, you know, more PMS, more insecure <laughs> parts of me right now? Who knows that if somebody looks at me a little bit weird, I'm probably gonna like cry and want to leave. So like, 
let me just be aware so I don't walk into a room with the lens of everybody hates me today because that's not true. Yep. And if I walk into a room without having that awareness of this is how I've been feeling all day or this is where I am in my cycle or this is what's going on, then I'm going to miss the magic of that room always. So like, really, that's just so powerful. And I just want to point out one thing about the show. So I was on um, What Are You Listening To last week? And I don't know when the episode airs, mm-hmm. but it'll be a good one. We, we, uh, Maggie Rods. It we, will air. Oh, go ahead. On the 18th. So your episode will air next Monday. Amazing. September 18th. So we talked about yeah. Maggie, Maggie Rod- Rogers. We talked about Stevie Wonder. And just like one of my favorite conversations like of the whole month. And what I think is so rad and we'll end it here is you don't sing. You no. don't play an instrument. Mm-mm. You don't write music. Nope. Okay. And you have a podcast fully dedicated to music. And the the premise of the show, which I just think is so amazing, is the guests bring on songs and you bring on songs and you basically have a conversation. And the conversations are so rich and so deep. Because every song, every lyric, every instrument influences emotion and memory and feelings and desires and dreams. So it just makes for such rich, deep conversations. And I was honestly, and I didn't tell you this, but was feeling so insecure when you asked me to be on the podcast because I have always felt like envy when people are really into music or like know everything about the Beatles or everything about Bob Dylan or, you know, everything about Motown or whatever it is. I'm always just like, damn, like, I wish I had all those facts. And I was reflecting and I'm like, you know what, Tim, you actually know a lot. Like, you like really love, love like, you know, Motown to the Temptations to Stevie Wonder to like these really amid- Frank Sinatra and these really rich musical influences. And I love music documentaries are my favorite thing in the world. And for so long, I'm just like, you don't know enough. And I'm like, well, I don't really know that much about rock because I think I'd rather throw on like R&B. <laughs> but like just really accepting like, you don't, she didn't ask you to come on because you're like a music expert. Like she asked you to come on because you like music and that's enough. That's enough to have a whole podcast about it. One thing that you have a little bit of an interest in. And I just, when I read that on a magazine interview, you were in that you don't sing, you don't play an instrument. I was like, hell yes. Like, I'm so glad you don't because to me, that would have been an absolute requirement for me to have a podcast about music. And now it wouldn't be because I'm like, I don't need to be an expert in that. I just have to like it and be curious about it and want to have a conversation about it. And that's enough. Yeah, it's so true. And it's a universal language, right? It's like I can talk to anybody through songs and even people that aren't big music fans. Like I'm waiting for somebody to bring like the happy birthday song or twinkle, twinkle, little star or something, right? Like that's still there's something there that's a song it's music it's something that resonates and i just think there's not a person on the planet that hasn't heard or been touched or moved by a piece of music even if it's not your main jam and yeah i don't have a degree in music i don't dated a lot of musicians i could say that <laughs> but yeah like i it's just it's it's a language that's uh, that i've always been fluent in and i'm so happy to talk with people about um and i think you can get deep real quick over a song and i love that yeah you can so let's leave it out what are you excited about right now 
Oh, wow. It feels like this has been a tricky season of life. It's um, I'll be 50 in March. And so um, I'm really I'm excited about hitting this half century mark. Like when I say it like that, it feels like, wow, like what an honor to have been around for like half of a hundred years. Like that's crazy. And in my head, I still like I'm sort of eternally 27 um, back to, you know, why I'm wearing like Converse and rompers to the high school. But I just think that I feel so excited to see what the second half brings, right? Like if I'm lucky enough to make it to 100, I had such an interesting, unique first half of life that was very goal focused. And I was very driven. And like I said, I knew I wanted to be in Hollywood. And I knew I wanted to do that. And I did that. And now it's just fun having a whole new set of goals and having the awareness that I have now to be able to go out and achieve those and make that happen. So I'm really excited to watch um, sort of this, the back nine unfold and see what what it brings. I think it's such a unique time in life. And, and it's it's different than any other phase of life that I've experienced. And I'm so happy to have my girlfriends and my tribe and my sisters with me um, and my family right now because they've become so important to everything that I do and and how I look forward and what I consider successful. And so I'm just super excited to watch these friendships like continue to grow and see what pans out as I head into uh, the next half century of life. <laughs> Women like you just make me so pumped to age. <laughs> just leave. Like, truly. I'm just like, I'm so excited. And I think that it's rare. Yeah. And it, it's becoming less rare in my life because I have friends like you and I have friends like Jen and I have women who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s that are some of my best friends that they are living like yes. they are living their life as big and bigger than they did sometimes in their 20s. And that just as somebody who wants to really live my life until my last breath, I'm just so grateful for you and for your spirit and the way that you show up. And so just so happy that you have a way that you get to continue to share your voice with the world. So listen to what are you listening to ideally on um, Spotify so that you can listen to the music that we're talking about in the episodes. And yeah. Jen, any other ways that people can connect with you? Yes, you can find the show on Spotify, as Sam mentioned, on Apple, anywhere you get podcasts. It's What Are You Listening To? It's part of the Super Awesome Mix podcast network. You can also find me on Instagram at Jen Jen 1020. That's J-E-N-N-J-E-N-N-1020. Love to connect. And I love what you said there, too. The last thing I'll say is like, really, um, if you don't have multi-generational friendships, go out and see if you can foster some of those. Like, I think that it's so enriching. And like you, I have friends that are 20 and 30 and 40. And I have friends that are 60 and 70 and 80. And I learn from all of them. I have the utmost respect for the way you live your life. I think you I said this on on the show when I had you on, like you really have 
taught an old dog new tricks. And I there's not one episode of your show where I haven't sat down and taken notes and, you know, really embraced what you have to say and what you're teaching and the kind of work that you're doing. It makes me so happy for my daughter to know that like women like you are leading the way so that she has a better space to grow up in. And I'm not ashamed or sad of the space that I grew up in, but I love seeing how far we've come. I love seeing how empowered you are to use your voice. And I love that you're telling people to embrace their too muchness because it was something that was really shut down in the 80s and 90s. And so I'm so, so happy that you are not only encouraging people to do it, but you're really cheerleading them on for it. So I have to say thank you to you for that. You're making the world better for me now and you're making it better for my daughter I'm accepting it I love you you really just mm. I love you <laughs> thank you Yay. so much for coming on everybody we'll see you next week connect with Jen listen to the podcast and yeah go make some friends who aren't the same age really it's the shit bye everybody bye <laughs>